Welcome to the show, friends. Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is uh, our program. Oh, I see people are already getting in the queue to talk with me. That's kind of nice. Well, let me talk to you just a little bit. And uh, before I go any further, I just want to let you know right now, 2,358 people are signed up for Minneapolis Reality. Um, we are 1,500 shy of what we would, not quite that much, but almost here are three weeks out. Uh, a little more than three weeks from our total last year, which is 3,800. I guarantee we're going to be over 4,000. We are so excited about this. We're going to burst that church, Grace Church Eden Prairie, at the seams. <clears throat> and uh, our time last weekend in uh, Seattle, Bellevue, was th thoroughly sold out. Not a seat in the crowd. I'm telling you, it was fabulous. And uh, we expect the same thing in Minneapolis. So um, if you're interested in the Minneapolis uh, event, Reality Student Apologetics Conferences, go to realityapologetics.com, and uh, you get all the information there. That will be on, let's get the date exactly right here, November 10th and 11th, right smack in the middle of the month, November 10th and 11th. I think some friends of mine from the church that I attend in northern Wisconsin will be there. I hope you'll be there, too. I'm just saying. I've already been through two of these, and they've been great. That's this season. Talking about Manor Maker, what is the source of our identity? And every single talk is fabulous. Every single one. So there you have it. Okay? Just want to let you know about that. I also wanted to read something, a, a note that somebody sent me about something interesting that happened in their life, and I uh, I thought it was pretty clever. So just um, one point out of the longer letter where he was saying how much he appreciates Standard Reason. It's really sweet. He said, I wanted to tell you a story about a friend of mine that was visiting one day. We went to high school together. And recently, when he was visiting me, I was asking him questions about what he believed and why he believes what he does. That would be the first two steps in the Colombo game, game plan. At first, he was giving me a hard time and snickering at what I was saying. And he asked a lot of the same questions a lot of other people do, like, if God is good, why... dot, 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 and a lot of other questions. <clears throat> As I answered his questions... I could see the wheels turning in his head, and he was starting to think. He had gotten into his truck to leave, and while he was still talking, he reached down and picked something out of his shoe. He had a stone in his shoe. A big one, too. He literally had a stone in his shoe. And I about fell down laughing. I thought you might get a kick out of hearing that. I did. Yeah, that's pretty good. Never had that story before. All right. I want to shift gears now from the somewhat ridiculous to the much more serious. Um, and I want to talk just a little bit more about the conference uh, that Andy Stanley had a couple of weeks ago at his church, the Unconditional Conference. I'm going to read for you, to you from a uh, piece written by Hunter Beaumont of the Gospel Coalition, so you can find this and read the whole thing. I'm not going to read everything, but there's a part of it I want you to hear, because I think it's so well um, well thought out. This is October 10th. 
when the piece uh, came out, stated, Jesus drew circles and lines, colon, a response to Andy Stanley. Now, um, Stanley's comment was Jesus drew circles, not lines, and so he was contrasting his approach to the this emerging sexual ethic in the church, and that's my concern. It's been in the culture for ages, but it has been emerging aggressively in the church, and what Andy Stanley has done is uh, is given a, a, a big boost to that a few weeks ago with his conference that Alan Schliemann attended. I think Alan's uh, summary of it was written written up and is posted on our website. Is that right, Amy? Yeah, it is. <clears throat> and if you were part of Stand to Reason and receive our, our missives, you would have gotten one in the mail. And uh, and it gives you our assessment with from a boots-on-the-ground perspective. Uh, this is a response, uh, I, I don't think, the, the uh, Hunter Beaumont uh, listened to the Sunday sermon after the, what, Friday-Saturday conference, um, unconditional, and and, and that was an attempt to speak to the audience by Andy Stanley's attempt to speak to the audience and and kind of help them feel comfortable with the direction that he went. Or I should say the direction that he that the conference went, which is a conference that he sponsored and knew everyone that was going to be there and pretty much everything they were going to say. Now he he made it clear that this was not a theological conference, this was a pastoral conference, so they weren't going to make theological points regarding same-sex marriage, same-sex activity, etc., etc., or gender dysphoria or uh, gender uh, ideation, but rather, <clears throat> how does one respond as a pastor in the circumstance? Of course, that's his first big mistake, is that you can't separate theology from pastoring, and frankly, I don't know why anyone would think they could, especially someone who's been around the block so many times as Andy Stanley. In any event, um, I want to pick up in the middle of this piece by Hunter Beaumont, and uh, his, um, his piece is reflecting back on Andy Stanley's long history, an attempt to contextualize Christianity in a way that a, a new generation um, can receive it, which is a good thing. Contextualization is a missionary enterprise. In fact, um, there was there's another word that he uses here. We'll get to it in a moment, and I'll explain it to you. But it's the same kind of thing that in the South, a lot of preachers, which I think would probably include his father, Charles Stanley, <clears throat> who um, who was part of this cultural way of communicating Christianity that Andy Stanley thought was getting in the way, was getting in the way of um, of communicating in a meaningful way, a way that younger people uh, could connect with. And so an old style, a cultural style, was interfering with the truth about Jesus that really needed to be communicated effectively to a new audience. And so that's kind of his project. Except for a couple of years back um, in 2018, uh, he gave a sermon, Andy Stanley, that um, was meant to, as he put it, kind of unhitch Christians from the burden of the Old Testament. And um, as 
Beaumont writes here, on the one hand, he seemed to be trying to make a true and simple point. Christians are under the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. But then Old Covenant got conflated with Old Testament, and he was arguing for unhitching our faith from the Old Testament Scripture. Now, I, I didn't follow this closely, but I know people on our team were aware of it, and we, there were some conversations about it, and concern that his attempts to, <clears throat> in a certain sense, make Christianity kinder and gentler for non-Christians, that is, make it more understandable, was actually um, eviscerating something. Maybe not. that's a strong word, but maybe um, sacrificing something critically important, and this could have ramifications down the line, unhitching the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, from the New Covenant and all that was associated with it. People had trouble with Old Testament. Don't worry about that. We are under the New Covenant. Let's focus on that. Okay. Um, And Beaumont writes, I was confused, but I see the logic at work. Stanley wanted to make it possible for those who objected to the Old Testament to have faith anyway. A problem with this approach is that New Testament ethics are often grounded in the creation order, such this is directly applicable to its teaching on sexuality. Jesus taught his disciples a hermeneutic where the kingdom of God restores creation to its original purpose. The Old Testament law, though not a binding covenant for Christians, is still an expression of that creation order. So there's congruence between New Testament ethics and Old Testament law. Just an observation here, I actually wouldn't have put it that way because the Old Testament law is the Mosaic Covenant, okay? It is expressed in the Pentateuch, but not everything in the Pentateuch is the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is given in Exodus Leviticus and then repeated in Deuteronomy, but much of Genesis and the Numbers, of course, is not the law, but information regarding the nation of Israel, and particularly the creation order, is not part of the law. It's the beginning of everything, the way God made everything, so you can appeal to the creation order without being charged as guilty of returning to the Old Testament law, though the creation order is in the Old Testament. All right? It's in Genesis, the book of beginnings, the beginning of the creation, the beginning of uh, human beings, the beginning of the problem, the beginning of the solution— the call of Abraham, the beginning of the nation of Israel, etc., and that sets up what is to follow the law given after the Exodus, which provides definition for that new nation that would be a blessing to all the nations, okay? But the concern here is that Andy Stanley maybe went too far in his application of unhitching, and that's the rest of this piece that I'll read to you. The unhitched controversy left me wondering— Beaumont writes, is Stanley crossing the Rubicon from mission to reduction? Crossing the Rubicon is like, uh, you know, no way back. That was the question running through my mind when I sat down to watch his October 1st sermon. The crux of my concern was this. The Unconditional Conference purported to equip Christian parents, presumably within a Christian framework. At the same time, it featured two men in same-sex marriages and an academic who argues against the historic Christian teaching on same-sex relationships. How could it help Christian parents while featuring speakers with unchristian views and practices? 
or does he, Stanley, not believe those views and practices are integral to original Christianity? Stanley began by framing his message as a response to Albert Moeller's September 18 World Column, an article titled, The Train is Leaving the Station, and it critiqued the conference. And here's what Stanley said. The author, Al Moeller, is actually accusing me of departing from his version of biblical Christianity. So I want to go on record and say I have never subscribed to his version of biblical Christianity to begin with. So I'm not leaving anything. In my opinion, his version of biblical Christianity is the problem. His version of biblical Christianity is why people are leaving Christianity unnecessarily. It's the version that causes people to resist the Christian faith because they can't find Jesus in the midst of all the other stuff and all the other theology and all the other complexity that gets globbed onto the message. Now, let me pause for a moment. What Stanley is talking about is something that actually happens with regularity. There are cultural things that kind of get attached how we talk about things as Christians, how we describe the gospel and other theological things, um, how we dress when we go to church, the kind of music that we use, all kinds of ways of talking about our Christian faith that, that is really an enculturated element. It's tied to the culture. It isn't tied to, the, in a certain sense, the raw or bare truth of Christianity. And frankly, this is a concern that I'm very sensitive to. It's why you you don't hear me using a bunch of Christian lingo. Uh, people introduce me as the president of Stand to Reason Ministry. We have never called it Stand to Reason Ministry. It's not on anything that we publish. It's just automatic for them to say that. I'm not offended, but I'm just making the point that we don't call our enterprise a ministry. It is one, but we don't call it that. We just call it Stand to Reason. It's an organization that is meant to train Christians to think more carefully about their convictions and to make a gracious, thoughtful, but incisive defense for classical Christianity and classical Christian values. Notice the absence of a lot of religious gobbledygook. We, we don't talk like that here at STR. It's, it's what we try to avoid, because I don't think that kind of way of being a Christian is helpful. I, I don't think it communicates. I think it's, for many people, religious noise. Okay, so in this regard, I think that people like Andy Stanley have a good point. But notice that his challenge to Al Mohler and their critique was that all of this gobbledygook, how did he put it, uh, um, all the other complexity that gets globbed on to the message. And I continue here, bottom line, Andy Stanley says, that version of Christianity draws lines, and Jesus drew circles. So now this is his motif, lines versus circles. He drew circles so large and included so many people in his circle that it consistently made religious leaders nervous, and his circle was big enough to include sinners like me. Now, that statement, I'm pausing here from reading, that statement is certainly true as far as it goes. But can you begin to see, or can you see how Stanley is beginning to take his audience down a different kind of road? Yes, Jesus did have open arms of inclusion, 
okay, but it wasn't as if these open arms of inclusion did not have moral boundaries or restrictions. He certainly excluded the self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees. Whoa, 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 he said time and time again, especially towards the end of his work and his time on earth, when he knew he was headed for the, you know, metaphorical gallows. His time was up. These people were mad, and they wanted to kill him, and he did not let up. So he, the circles he drew excluded people, not just included. But what Stanley wants us to feel is the warm embrace of the of those that are rejected by other Christians. Well, maybe Christians have rejected certain groups of people because these are the people that God rejects from the kingdom because of their sinful behavior. Anyway, I continue. Much has been made of Stanley's circles and lines. Now I'm reading Beaumont's piece. But few have traced his rationale. It's been his longtime concern to remove obstacles and declutter the message. Good. To use missionary speak, he thinks Moeller is teaching an enculturated form of Christianity. That's the term I was looking for earlier. Um, And that's what Stanley calls, quote, his version of biblical Christianity, close quote, that creates the obstacles to people discovering Jesus. He, Stanley, wants to draw people into relationship circles who might not otherwise darken the door of an evangelical church. But woven into this concern are several confusions. Moeller uses the term biblical Christianity to describe what he sees as essential things in Scripture, not cultural stuff globbed on. Moeller would surely recognize the validity of different cultural forms, ministry models, and even theological traditions. He's not accusing Stanley of departing his, his preferred system. He's concerned with something more essential. Thus, the Moeller-Stanley debate and disparate use of terms frames up the issue at hand. Is Stanley practicing a missional form of original Christianity, or is he reducing the faith? Now, there's more I could read here. It's an excellent piece. I'm just thinking probably not the best use of our time for me to go on much further. Um, But uh, I will say this, that in that sermon, here is the way that Andy Stanley summarized what it looks like sexually to follow Jesus. Now, I just want you to think about this. If I were to ask you to sum up what it looks like sexually to follow Jesus, what, what would you say? Three points. What would you say? Where would you go to find this information? Now, uh, um, there are not many places where Jesus speaks about sexuality. Uh, he says something in the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her in your heart, and just point of information, the in your heart part is important. They don't commit adultery. That's not the same thing. Adultery in your heart is a different sin. It's still a sin, but it's 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 a different sin. And some people say, don't make that clar- clarifying distinction. Um Anyway, uh, I would think, well, there's, he says that, and in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, make that, uh, 
Matthew 19, when he talks about divorce and remarriage, he makes it clear that marriage is, as I've summed it up in the past, one man with one woman becoming one flesh, that sex, for one lifetime. Okay, so th- that's part of it. Sex is in marriage and not outside of marriage, and marriage is heterosexual marriage. Okay, all right. Well, here's the way Andy Stanley sums it up. One, honor God with your body. Okay, well, that's good advice. I don't, I don't know where Jesus says that. Do I? No, I don't think so. Don't be mastered by anything. Porn, sexual addiction, another person, lust. Okay, that's the second point. Don't be mastered by anything. I think this is actually a Pauline teaching, not Jesus. And don't sexualize a relationship outside of marriage. Now, there's a little closer to what Jesus taught, Matthew 19. But there is that ambiguity of marriage. He doesn't say heterosexual marriage, but that is what Jesus taught there. And then he says, we affirm all three of the Apostle Paul's statements on the topic of same sex, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. What the Apostle Paul called sin was sin then and sin now. And then he concluded that biblical marriage is between a man and a woman. Now, um, Beaumont writes, I was grateful for these clear affirmations, yet other statements pulled in a different direction. After outlining the New Testament sexual ethics, Stanley explained that some people choose same-sex marriage because they find chastity, quote, not sustainable, unquote. It's their decision, he said. Our decision is to decide how do we respond to their decision. And we decided 28 years ago, we draw circles, we don't draw lines. In other words, this isn't a decision the Church would challenge. So that's the problem. Now, it's this—are the circles— God's circles, Jesus' circles, or are they cultural circles, is the question I'm asking. And uh, and it's, it's obvious to me that the direction Stanley's moving is the direction of inclusion based on cultural standards, not on biblical standards. It does not matter what he says here when he says, I affirm— all these things, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, when, in fact, at the same time he says that, he has a whole conference that does just the opposite. And uh, that's what uh, Beaumont goes on to argue in the rest of his piece. So I commend that to you. One last thought before we go to break and then to calls. And that is... In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about sheep among wolves, or wolves among sheep, or actually he calls it wolves in sheep clothing. Now, I want to make an observation about this. And the observation is the wolves that would plunder the church, and Paul talks about this, what, in Acts 19 or whatever, when he leaves the Ephesian elders, he says, I've warned you in the past, wolves will come into your midst, okay? Jesus calls them wolves in sheep's clothing, and the reason is, is because they look like sheep, but they're not. They look like us. 
Now, just a clarification here, because this is the passage where he says, you will know them by their fruits. And so people read into this text what the fruit is supposed to look like. And in fact, pro um, let me back up and put it, gay-affirming Christians have used this text to, to demonstrate that what the Christian's attitude about homosexuality has done is it's hurt other Christians. That's bad fruit, and Jesus is teaching against that here. You'll know them by their fruits. You Christians are hurting other Christians who are gay by your lines instead of circles, and therefore you are the ones Jesus is correcting in this passage. All you need to do is keep reading. The pericope starts in verse 15 and ends in verse 23. And Jesus starts by saying, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Then he goes on to talk about good trees and good fruit and bad tree and bad fruit, but there's an ambiguity about what that fruit looks like. And the interpretation that some have given is when people's feelings are hurt, they don't feel like they belong, and they're excluded and everything. This is so painful for them, that's bad fruit. But that is not the way Jesus characterizes it. Keep reading. Many will say, verse 22, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? These are the false prophets. And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Look at all these good things we did, apparently, according to you, these people who looked like the sheep. And I made the distinction here. These are not Mormons that you could qualify as wolves in sheep's clothing. They aren't in sheep's clothing. They don't look like us. They have a totally different religion. Same words, all different theology. No, it was those that look like us, but are doing something else. And this is the capstone verse 25, and then, I'm sorry, 23, and then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the bad fruit that is being displayed by the false prophets, the wolves in sheep's clothing, are those who encourage Christians to practice lawlessness. And that, I think, is a fitting summary to what happened at the Unconditional Conference a few weeks ago, sponsored by Andy Stanley and his church. Regardless of what he said on Sunday, we agree with this, that, and the other thing. Really? If you agree with Romans 1, if you agree with uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. If you agree with these other so-called clobber passages, if you agree with them, why the conference with the people that you had speaking from the main stage and in all the plenary or the uh, breakout sessions and whose books sold copiously on that during the conference, with no books of a contrary nature. Sounds kind of wolfy to me, but time will tell. I'm not drawing that conclusion yet. We'll see 
which direction he takes this. But I think this is a watershed event. And the measure of apostasy now is not going to be whether people believe in the Bible. He believes in the Bible. So he says, the measure will not be whether they believe Jesus is the only Savior. He believes Jesus is the only Savior. There's another issue, though, that completely eclipses those claims, and that's the homosexuality issue. We'll see what happens, and we will stay on top of it as best we're able. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Uh, Let's take a break. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, friends, just a reminder that uh, we got some things happening in the next couple of weeks. Tim Barnett will be speaking at Living Truth Christian Fellowship here in Corona, California, Sunday, October 22nd. And that's a complete bummer for me because I think I'm going to be out of town. Will I be? I don't know. But <laughs> when Tim comes to Southern Cal, I want to spend time with him. Anyway, you can spend time with him, Living Truth Christian Fellowship, Corona, California, October 22nd. And I will be speaking at the Thinking About Faith Apologetics Conference in Bothell, Washington. It was in uh, Seattle area last week, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks, November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, Friday through Sunday, long weekend there. Um, and uh, if you'd like to get any more information on that, just go to uh, str.org slash events, and all of our schedules are available there.
Okay. Uh, let's see. I have got the one, the only, Cade in Colorado Springs. Cade, welcome to the show. Hey, Mr. Coco. Mr. Cade, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Oh, one day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> We yeah, had a we had a great a great time last week um, at uh, in Seattle. It was last weekend, I should say, just a couple of days ago now. And are you going to be? I, maybe I asked you this, but I forgot your answer. Are you going to be in Minneapolis again? Uh, I will be. Okay, super, super. We got twenty. What did I say? Twenty three fifty eight right now that have signed up. But I know there's a lot more people who are going to come be signing up in the next few weeks. Have you signed up yet? We have. Yeah. Are you going to take a road trip, or are you flying this time? We're gonna fly. Uh-huh. Um, it's just a whole lot easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. So you've got you and your mom. I haven't met your dad yet. He's gonna be coming. Actually, oh, no kidding. That's great. And then I met your 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 goofy young brother, who's like a smaller version of you, except for a little bit more wild. <laughs> that that would be a great description. I think. Yeah. And what's his name again? Um. Well, so I have two younger brothers. One one's name is Kyler, and the other name is Kale. Ty- Kyler. Kyler, right? And the other one is? Kale. K-A-L-E? So your folks are in the K's, right? C-A-L-E for Kale. Oh, oh, C-A-O. He doesn't want to sound like the uh, salad item, right? No, no. Okay. All right. All right, Cade. K-A-D-E. What's on your mind today? Yeah, so I wanted to call you. It's actually very recent. I wanted to call you and ask you about this, Mr. Coco. I'll just give you a quick backstory so you can understand my question. Sure. Um, I've been taking a literature class at a local charter school, um, and recently we were assigned to read some essays by the American author uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Sure. Um, and I didn't know anything about Emerson until I started reading for this assignment, but apparently he subscribed to this view of transcendentalism, and right. he was an apostate clergyman. Right. Um, the reason I wanted to call you and, and talk to you is because I tomorrow I get this we're going to be discussing this as a class, and I know his philosophy is going to be brought up. And throughout his work, um, Emerson is referring to things like, we're part of the universal consciousness, the universal being, we're all particles of God. Um, humanity is like inherently good, and that we should rely on ourselves and trust in ourselves through knowledge and morality. And I want to be able to give a good biblical answer, rebuttal to that kind of philosophy, especially tomorrow when I have the opportunity to maybe put this, a stone in some people's shoes. And sure. so I wanted to ask you some questions about the transcendentalism okay. philosophy. Okay. So, first of all, because I know you've, like, you've done like a debate with like Deepak Chopra. Right. Um, and Chopra said something like, the speck of God, the soul, um, is, like, is, is not separated from us, that we're all part of this universal being. And Emerson echoes this sentiment. So how do we respond as Christians to this like idea that we are all part of the universal being, that we're like reflections of God? Well, I, I just, <clears throat> I have a, a concern about, hold on just a second, I'm, I'm sorry, um, the, the, sometimes I feel like I'm a broken record. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to most people who never grew up with records, but that means you keep repeating yourself over and over and over again. <laughs> Um, people come up with all of these nice-sounding things, and Emerson right. and uh, Thoreau did as well with Walden. Um, right. They, they, and New Agers kind of talk like this too, and that would be Deepak Chopra. And the it isn't so much that that issue got dealt with when I had my debate with Deepak 
Chopra. It was just that that's kind of a backdrop of his view. And there's kind of right. a mixture of Eastern mysticism in there and, and a lot of different things. And it's partly what makes that whole approach appealing, because it's, it's I think, high on uh, individual freedom, low on human responsibility. But there's this, right. we're all God, and isn't the universe wonderful, and we're one with the universe kind of feel to it. This was, uh, you know, the age of Aquarius stuff, you know, from when I was a teenager back in the 60s. So it's... Um, it's it's got a general appeal, okay. But my question, and this is the broken record part: <clears throat> Why should I believe Emerson or Thoreau, who was much like him as transcendentalist? Why should I believe them? This is Gnostic New Thought. A lot of it is very similar. It's eclectic. They're picking up different things from different places. But why should I believe this is actually true? And I, I thought it was interesting. I'm not sure who made this observation, but during the time that uh, Thoreau was writing Walden and Emerson were writing The Transcendentalists, these were New England folk, principally, that um, in talking about how you know, nature is so wonderful, you had Jack London writing also, and Jack London was writing about nature will devour you, you know, and he wrote Call of the Wild and White Fang and, and uh, th those kinds of things, you know. It's like, and so you get these two different pictures of, and ironically, there one is a romantic view, and this is the, the transcendental view, and it seems to me that, that uh, the other is a realist view. And what I mean by that is you can actually see and experience and watch the consequences of nature, you know, um, devouring humanity. We have to beware of nature. We don't embrace it. We beware of it because it's so vicious and destructive. And it's easy to take a walk in the woods and feel one with nature until I look at in in Wisconsin where we have our place um, sometimes we have windstorms that it looks like the even if it's not a tornado it it look and this happened on our property a couple years ago where it's been hit by artillery the trees are just busted right in two snapped in two and the wind is howling and the trees are dropping and crashing and there's nature yeah and and when those things happen we're sitting in the cabin and all that's happening around of us i don't feel one with nature yeah i i feel threatened by nature unleashed okay so uh what i think that Emerson and Thoreau and the rest of those people are in touch with, and even New Agers in a certain sense, is the fact that human beings are made in the image of God. So there is a transcendent, beautiful element to being human. We can acknowledge that. But the Christian view of reality, the, the proper understanding, or the, what, the, what Scripture teaches about the nature of reality, actually comports with the way reality actually is, that human beings are desperately evil. And just think of what happened just the last couple of weeks and has been going on in uh, in Israel. Now, it doesn't matter what side a person in your in your charter school is going to take on that, whether what Hamas did is was evil or whether what they did was understandable because of the evil that Israel did to the Palestinians, however they want to characterize that, they are talking about grotesque inhumanity to man. So this isn't 
Emerson's and and Thoreau's world of transcendental beauty and oneness with God, where God is in all of us, and we should just trust ourselves because we're all basically good. How can anyone believe that in light of what has been happening at all for in our entire lifetimes, but especially morbidly so in the last uh, week and a half or so? So um, the the this is what I think you could trade off of. Okay. okay, one. Why? Why should we take Emerson's view of the the human? Um, what's the word I want to look for? Of humanity, nature. human nature. Sure. Why should we take that um, seriously? Why is that the whole of it? And we are basically good, and we should trust ourselves with morality and everything. And what 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 do you make of that kind of assessment in light of all of the conflict we see in the world today? The Ukraine, Middle East, you know, people call it the cycle of violence. I think that's a mischaracterization because I think, don't think there's parity between the Palestinians and Hamas. I should say that. Hamas, not all Palestinians are Hamas. They're not all Muslim either. A lot of Palestinians are Christians. But uh, there's no parity between Israel and Hamas, all right? But that's the way they make it with this so-called cycle of violence. Nevertheless, this is all in the news. How do we rectify this assessment of reality? And that's what Emerson is giving. How do we rectify that, reconcile it, rather, with all that we see happening in the world? And this is like... Emerson versus and and Thoreau versus Jack London, <laughs> Call of the mm. Wild. Although probably few students in your group there are going to even know who Jack London is. But <laughs> uh, I went to Jack London Junior High School, you know. So and I read most of his stuff before he before I even went there in junior high because I read stuff like that. But anyway, in any event, that would be the kind of approach that I take. Why should we believe these guys? Is there good in human beings? Yeah. Why would we say that this is essentially the nature of man? Look at what else is going on. There is a worldview that makes sense of both, the beauty and the brokenness, okay, the dignity and the cruelty, to use Francis Schaeffer's terminology. Uh, dignity and, broke, and uh, beauty and brokenness are what I use in Story of Reality, and the, that is, it is the biblical worldview that tells the truth here. It it tells us about both aspects of humanity. So you might want to you know work, work that in there in some way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? I think yeah, that's actually really helpful, Mister Coco. But like just to kind of tweak that a little bit. Okay. Um, somebody might like come back and say maybe like I'm just like I'm also just trying to understand the philosophy. Sure. That you know people like Hamas or Hitler or Stalin or Ted Bundy, they're exceptions to the rule. The, the regular person is not that evil. How would you respond to something like that? There are only exceptions to the rule in in degree, not in kind. Okay. Okay, as you just put it, they're not that evil. Yes, they're not that evil. But all you have to do is look at, your, at, at high school politics. You know, and I've had—there's been a lot of drama uh, lately for me with high school that my daughter's out. And you just just look at that. Look at any circumstance. You're, it doesn't matter what circle of human beings that you're looking at. Uh, you're going to get nasties. Okay? What you're not going to get is what is described by Emerson. 
You've got to, what do you have to do? You got to go to Walden Pond, you know, Thoreau. You got to go there and get away, you know, and just isolate yourself all by yourself and then groove on the nice weather when it's nice and it's not out to kill you. Then it all seems cool, acceptable. But in many other circumstances, no, it's just not. So I, I would say everybody's afflicted by this. We know this. All we have to do is look inside of ourselves. Why is the message that we are really good and one with God and all that other stuff, why is that so appealing? Because it doesn't seem to be the case. If it always seemed to be the case, we would need to be taught it. The reality is that we're not (laughs) that way. We're bad. We are good in some measure, and we're bad in some significant measure, too. We don't need to be taught either of those things. That's obvious. And it is the Christian view of reality that makes sense of those details. Not mm. anybody else's view. Okay. That's great. And as a follow, follow-up, um, then I'll be done here, Mr. Kokel. Okay. Another thing in Emerson's philosophy, and I, you were just talking about Andy Stanley, so that might apply to this as well, is that Emerson took this idea of, like, why do we need to rely on the traditions of everybody else? Why can't we have our own special revelation, almost this view of chronological snobbery? Uh-huh. Um, how would you respond to something like that, saying, like, why can't we have our own revelations of, uh, quote-unquote, God? Why can't we have our own traditions? Well, people can have their own traditions. There's no question about that. Um, whether they, have a, they get their own revelation of God depends on God, if what you mean by revelation is the classic sense that Christians mean. Uh, you can only have your own revelation of God if there is a God to give it, and he gives it to you, Okay. But that's kind of, to me, this is like saying, why can't I have my own physics? I don't like the way—actually, my wife will tell you this. I complain—I don't complain about the problem of evil. I complain about the problem of physics. You know, I'm trying to get into my trousers, and I'm falling over because, you know, my balance is not good, and or I drop things, and i got to go under the table and get them, and I'm going, damn, blasted physics, man. It's the problem of physics. That's what gets in my way. Okay, why can't I have a different physics? This is inconvenient. And the answer is because this is the way that reality is structured. You get what you get. Okay, Um, religion, I should say the spiritual realm, is what it is or isn't. If there's no spiritual realm, then there's no spiritual realm. And making up your own religion just is your you're placebo, that's all. You're just making up a fantasy to make you feel better. But there is no reality to that, if there is no reality to that. Okay? Um, If there is a reality, there is a spiritual dimension, a transcendent dimension, transcendentalism, there's a transcendent dimension, and human beings participate in it, then it looks a certain way. You, you, You can invent your own transcendental religion if you want to, but that doesn't mean it's It fits reality. What we're looking to find out is what is reality actually like. It isn't just a club. It isn't a flavor of ice cream. It isn't what we like, because reality has a way of bruising us when we don't take it seriously. If we stop believing in gravity, we're not going to float away, because it's a feature of reality. We jump off a roof, we're going down. That's just the way reality is structured. And so it isn't the question of, why can't I have my own revelation? Why can't we do our own whatever? It's because, in one sense, you could do and believe whatever you want, but but reality still is what it is. And if you get it wrong, it's going to hurt you. 
So the goal ought to be figuring out what reality is like, even in the transcendental spiritual realm. Does Emerson and Thoreau, do they have it accurate? Well, if they do, then Jesus was wrong. If Jesus does, then they were wrong. But they can't both be right. And so I would say the thing to find out is to what what is reality actually like? What is the nature of reality? What is the truth that is the fact of the matter? That's what we're after. And even the question that you offered that people might may press you with, it, it it is an indicator that they actually relativize this entire issue. I want my own. I just want my own thing. Well, if that would be fine if if we're talking about ice cream, not insulin. But we're not talking about ice cream, are we? We're talking about insulin, the the real world out there and what it what it's like. That's the mm-hmm. key. Make sense? Yeah. That that makes perfect sense, Mr. Kokel. That was very helpful. Thank you so much. All right, Kate, I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks, okay? Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to you. And although I, I may not, I may not uh, recognize you. I mean, I got a picture of another fellow from Fargo area, Daniel, and he's been going to these. And his folks sent me a picture. He says, "Just want you to see it because he keeps growing up, and so do you." So <laughs> uh, you'll have to, you know, I'll have to look at your name tag. <laughs> all right, That's buddy. All good, Mr. Coco. Thanks again. Okay, see you later. All right, take care. All right, so nice to talk with Kate. He does a great job and everything, so thoughtful. And what, he's, is he 16 yet? Is he, He's been calling for three years. Is he, I don't think he's 16 yet, Is, but uh, getting there. Let's go. Uh, we just got uh, about seven more minutes here, so let's go to Kevin uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Kevin, welcome to Stand to Reason. Hi. Hey, Greg, thanks. Um, real quick, uh, we recently found out as parents that um, a – a book came into the school system for high school uh, that is, you know, um, it's really just pornographic gay material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, help called, us. It's called All, All Boys Aren't Blue. And anyways, it's very, very disgusting, clearly pornographic, and uh-huh. um, they're, they're wavering on it, you know. They're, they don't know what to do. And I have three minutes to speak on this right. November 1st. Right. And I wanted your wisdom on what I should oh, say. When is that going to be? How long from now? November 1st. Okay, so you got a little time. I actually yeah. addressed something like this at uh, our own school, uh, Conejo Valley Unified School District, and I couldn't attend, but my wife did, and so I wrote a piece that she could read. Um, are you familiar with this piece that I wrote? You saw, You talked about it like two years ago, and I was wondering if you could point me to it. Yeah, I can. Um, It's on our website, and Amy's going to include it in the show notes here. Um, I'm not even sure. If you went to the website and just typed in school board in the search feature Uh and uh, click my name like author, anything that Greg did on school board, I think you're going to find it. I I did locate it myself on our website by searching around for it, but Amy will include a direct link in the, the show notes here. But I will tell you my—and then you can adapt it. That's fine with me, mm-hmm. because um, basically my approach is this. The schools should be teaching uh, values that everyone agrees on, not um, indoctrinating according to a parochial set of values. When I say parochial, I mean an individual, unique kind of 
values, okay? Um, they should, uh, and, and this is not, school is not the place for what they're doing. And what they're doing is, is controversial, and it's divisive. It put, it pits people against people, okay? Because people think this is not appropriate. And since it's sexual, I mean, I don't know how, what grade is this? Uh, this is school, uh, high school? 9 through 12, yeah. Okay, well, grades 9 to 12. I mean, those kids are minors. Some of them are. How is this not sexual um, in, in sexual indecency or something? If you took something pornographic and you gave it to a 9-year-old person, kid, that's actionable. How can you do the same thing in a library, though? I, I, you know, like this. I, 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 and it's not. So um, what I was doing in the piece, three minutes isn't long, so you need to be, use your time wisely. And again, you're welcome to cannibalize anything from this piece that I've written. And um, what I'm trying to do is pit their twisted value system against them. So they have a twisted understanding of of tolerance and a twisted understanding of authenticity and and uh, and that kind of thing in helping kids. What is going on here is a partisan effort to promote homosexuality. That's all it is. That's all it is. I mean, I mean, what? Anyway, because obviously this book is has to do with homosexuality. Yeah. Right. And so, and promoting it, not, you know, whatever the title was, they're not all blue or whatever. All so, boys aren't blue. All boys aren't blue. Well, okay, so what? The blue, uh, Anyway, um, you don't have to be blue and like blue things to be a boy. You can wear pink if you want to and be a boy. I've worn it, but they're just, this is all just simply a way. They're, what they're saying is cultural standards are, are narrow and inconsequential. But it turns out sexual standards are not inconsequential. Under this, all uh, all boys aren't blue. They're they're bringing in a whole bunch of other stuff affirming homosexual behavior, which is dangerous, by the way, very dangerous. Okay, so mm -hmm. so th this is what you want to do is you you want to try to play their values against them. And so in the piece, the way I approached this was. Um, we are a, a we are a diverse community. Okay, you have you have uh, you have Mexicans, you have Muslims, you have Christians, you have uh, actually I'm not sure if I use maximum racial differences or ideological differences. I think what you have all these different things. Okay, when we come together for community, another one of their their words, we want to emphasize the things that everyone in our community to, can agree on. We are here to educate all of our children, not to indoctrinate them into a narrow political, ethical, moral viewpoint, okay? Since everyone does not agree with this moral viewpoint that you're pushing, you shouldn't be pushing it. This kind of instruction should be left up to the families. And another point that I made, and this all in in that piece, that uh, another point that I made is that um, when one group that gets in power can enforce their views, their divisive views, their controversial views on another group, okay, that sets a pattern. 
That means whoever is in power can get do whatever they want. So what happens when the power shifts to a much more conservative type group? Do they get to now force their views and have their parochial uh, uh, literature and stuff? In other words, things that just support their view, forced upon, foisted upon the other students. And uh, and so my appeal is: what we ought to do is teach and educate on those things that we all agree on like honesty and hard work and you know a host of other classical values though it's hard to know whether they still agree with honesty and hard work or any of those things but anyway that was that was my approach and uh like i said you can borrow cannibalize adapt anything you want from that piece that's on our website and amy will put the link in the show notes and Kevin, I'd be very interested to have you call back and let me know how things went for you, okay? Uh, Be polite, be gracious, but be very clear in what you're saying. Don't read too fast. Uh, Test yourself out a couple of times so you don't go over time and play by the rules. But speak the truth graciously and forcefully, and I'd like to hear how that turns out. Thanks for the call. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Go out and give them heaven, friends, just like Kevin is doing. 